Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. As usual, we'll start in the back of the demo with Exhibit C. Nothing, nothing to speak of on oil pricing, except to note that on Exhibit C, that surplus capacity of 2.8 million barrels out of 100 in 22 is now more. The reason it's more is because the OPEC countries plus Russia have sidelined another million and a half barrels. I don't think it's a million and a half barrels, but let's call it a million. So that surplus capacity is now you know, better part of these barrels. And that's not good. Now, uh, demand is up, but, <clears throat> you know, the 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 thing, I just make a commentary, and for those who don't have Exhibit C in front of them, U.S. demand does not grow. U.S. demand is around 20 million barrels a day. It does not grow. It's flat. Europe demand is 14 million barrels a day. It doesn't grow. It's flat. China is the second largest at 15 million barrels a day, and China does grow. But China is clearly slowing down. With the recovery from COVID, they're definitely, their economy is doing better. But <clears throat> we see iron ore going down, we see metal going down, we see copper flat, but commodities are generally going down. And I think that it may become clear as this year goes by that China has come back from COVID, but they're coming back in the West, where it's more services and consumer goods and less building, office buildings and apartment buildings and railroads and airports and stuff. So I, I'm not sure that China is going to be the same user. Now everyone says, well, India, whose population is, is, is just surpassing China's, I think they're both about a billion, 300 million people. But India only uses one-third the amount of oil that China uses, around 5 million barrels a day as compared to 15. So even if the five is growing, it just doesn't help that much. So that's a commentary on oil. On natural gas, the problem is, and this is Exhibit B, that we have about a 10 billion a day hole, and that is uh, production with uh, five, six dollar pricing the last year is up five Bs a day. No one predicted that. It started to calm down a little bit, but gas pricing now is gonna average, you know, 270, 280 this year, and that'll eventually have an impact on dry gas production. The other thing is in the warm weather we had in the winter, we didn't get the same uh, residential commercial demand, and that was off by about five. Interestingly enough, power demand's up by about two, which offsets some of the five. Uh, the good news is, as we get into the second half of this year and into 24, that, that the power demand is probably going to, <clears throat> which power demand had been pretty flat, uh, it's probably going to start up. Total demand, just for the people without exhibit B in front of them, 
total demand last year was 100 bees a day. That's 33 from power, 22 from industrial, 25 from residential commercial, six ex exports to Mexico, 12 LNG exports, and two pipe loss. So industrial is flat as a pancake. Residential commercial is pretty flat, but we did lose in the first half of this year about five. That'll, that'll, uh, that'll probably moderate by the time we get to the end of the year. But power demand, which has been pretty flat, I think it's going to grow now. Why is power demand growing? Because electricity demand is going to go up and renewables are, you know, are not as reliable as nuclear or gas or coal. Coal is getting displaced. Uh, so I think power demand can go up by about a billion a day. And LNG demand will go up by about two billion a day. But boy, what we really need, we need to have dry gas kind of hold at around 100 billion a day. Exhibit A, there's going to be lots of publicity about debt ceilings. And uh, for those without the exhibit in front, there's a very good, well, I shouldn't say it. I put these numbers together uh, from, the, from uh, various sources that the federal government publishes. But to me, there's at least 200 Bs, 200 billion of saving. The If you take out Medicare, uh, Social Security, Medicaid, take out defense, take out interest, the amount of all other in 2019, the year before COVID, was 910 billion. For this year that we're in, this fiscal year, we're in and the government's on a September 30 fiscal year, it's a it's a, a billion four. That five hundred billion is too much. That has to be reduced. I'm not sure you can have it, but that has to be reduced. And whatever the Democrats in the Senate or our our president says, it's just not sustainable. And there has to be more discipline there. Mike Jason, anything to add on oil gas or uh, debt ceiling? Not me, Jason. Yeah, I, I just agree. Yeah, the 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 other spending in the government has to be reduced. It's it's kind of counteracting what the Fed's trying to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a quick rundown on some of the AI stuff we've been talking about, and then we're going to switch to uh, pharmaceuticals. So just to go to page one, Apple reports, I think after the close of trading today, Alphabet reported kind of okay, still a little vulnerable to being somewhat behind open ai and, and microsoft tesla mike jason myself have spent a fair amount of time on hard to say better better to watch as the year goes out i think microsoft uh kind of the big get bigger we talked to about snowflake uh, last week and oracle and salesforce amd on page three is down. I, I, the results look okay. Mike or Jason, do you want to comment on AMD? I, I think the, the takeaway that I had was gaming looked better than I expected it to look. The results probably looked better, but also I don't think the previous year quarter included their um, acquisition of Xilinx. Right. It didn't include that. Yeah. So, so while the numbers might have looked okay because they weren't down that much, if you factor that out, it, it wasn't ideal. 
Intel continues to underperform. Taiwan Semiconductor is clearly very strong, but also a bit of political risk. Page four, good friend of mine who listens to these podcasts, says that he went back to the last three years of 10Ks for Amazon. You'll see they don't have free cash flow on these numbers on page four, but it's not a new phenomenon. You could even make the case that when Bezos left and Jassy replaced them, that, that they haven't had free cash flow since Bezos left, which is probably a little unfair to Jassy. But any commentary, Mike Jason, on Amazon's uh, stance, how they, how yeah, they, yeah. Uh, how they get back to free cash flow? Well, it's kind of by design that they don't. They they try to plow all that money back into the business, and and I forgot what year it was, but Wall Street was getting a little antsy with Bezos and. And he proved them wrong for a quarter and generated a ton of cash flow and, and then went back to, to reinvesting. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're also suffering from kind of over-investing. They also got caught up in the COVID wave and thought that e-commerce was just going to continue to grow from where it peaked, like others, like Shopify and, and whatnot. So they over-invested in their warehouse capacity. So they're kind of suffering higher operational expenses. They're a little harder to dial down, but I think the retail business is going to eventually catch up to that spend. I mean, they have, they essentially built UPS during COVID, which is just absolutely phenomenal. So right. I think right. it's going to take some time before we get to the free cash flow numbers we'd like to see. Right. And while we're on free cash flow, how about Meta, which is also on page four? Uh, I I make them off their uh, year-end results just barely positive in terms of free cash flow, but I guess that can and can and probably will improve this year. Yeah, I th- I thought it was interesting that uh, the, you know everyone was uh, giving Zuckerberg a hard time about his spend for the metaverse. That kind of died down because they've returned to growth. But they spent $4 billion just in the last quarter investing in the metaverse. So he's actually increased spend there. No idea if that'll pay off, but at least they've, they've returned to growth, which kind of indicates they've figured out the whole ad tracking transparency, um, a solution to, to target ads again, which, which is really their revenue generator. Right. I have a, a three-minute speech to make here. I'm all the way back on page 15, which this week is uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and a company called Lantheus that that Mike and Jason have turned up. We spend a lot of time on on chips and and software connected with chips and Taiwan Semiconductor and the impact of AI and whatnot. Looking for companies that are going to have free cash flow, uh, cash on hand. What I uh, what I suspect is that to find a part of our capital markets or economy that where we get similar kinds of uplift, we have to look at the technology that goes into developing pharmaceuticals. Page 15 will change. Uh, we're going to add probably this week at least one more company. We may even have... Uh, kind of a supplemental page 15a but the two companies here that are interesting in terms of performance of the last two years are Pfizer and Moderna and one of the companies we'll add is uh, BioNTech if I'm pronouncing it correctly which is 
the German company that Pfizer developed a joint venture with to uh, produce their vaccine. You can see from these numbers, I mean, the free cash flow of Pfizer last year was $20 billion. Uh, their total uh, enterprise value is 240, so only trading at six times free cash flow. But of course, uh, with COVID vaccine being used much less, their cash flows could be way off. In fact, Pfizer reported their revenues being off by about a third. I haven't seen the Moderna report yet, but uh, or haven't focused on it, but similar set of circumstances. But I think for the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus in this area. And since I have trouble even remembering the initials like RNA and stuff like that, I think to turn it over to Jason and Mike to uh, explain what's going on here. I mean, if NVIDIA's capability in, in doing GPUs, which are terribly uh, important, it's a pick and shovel way to take advantage of AI. How do we think about what Pfizer and Moderna were able to do or what other participants will be able to do using this technology? So having having fumbled over this and, and showing a general lack of knowledge, even, even getting the initials right, Let's let's envision that Jason is is teaching a seminar. The rest of us over to you, Jason. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I'm the the appropriate person. Then <laughs> we're not doctors, so <laughs> take that as a caveat. But yeah, I'm RNA, and just some of the other gene therapies that are in the works been described as using your body as a bioreactor, and I think that's that's a pretty good way to sum it up. So essentially, it's it's the instructions on how to generate proteins within your body is what mRNA, these mRNA vaccines were. So they're, they're essentially using your body to generate the treatments. The, the mRNA itself isn't the, isn't the treatment. It's what your body creates that triggers the immune response, which then in this, in this case of COVID was, it was used to attack that virus. And, and they're applying it to cancer. So you hear things like cancer vaccines. It's really triggering your body to produce this overwhelming immune response that then attacks cancer cells or you know anything else that they're trying to target with these mRNA vaccines. And one thing to point out is previous, and like the flu vaccine, for example, is different in that what they do is actually inject a, a, a virus, maybe it's already dead or just severely weakened, to trigger your body to create the immune response. So it's similar but very different in a lot of ways. It's, you could probably say that because of the fact that it wasn't injecting a live virus, the FDA was probably more open to approving the these vaccines faster than they were in the past not notwithstanding the global pandemic and whatnot was going on but they were somewhat more willing to 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 brush through the process i if you go back three years to moderna there was practically no revenue and last year there was 19 billion of revenue and eight and a half billion of free cash flow you know pfizer is a full-fledged pharmaceutical company, but its revenues, you know, probably double because of the vaccine. The, the company will add this weekend is BioNTech, which is a small, well, it was a small German company, but, uh, and I have to check the numbers, but Moderna is, is, is sitting here with, you know, 10 billion of cash and, and no debt. I think BioNTech, unless I got the numbers wrong, I'll check them this weekend is sitting on 20 billion of cash and, and no debt. What I'm interested in from an investment point of view 
is who has the capability to use this technology on, you know, let's let's assume COVID is in the rearview mirror. What else can be done with this technology? And is it reasonable to assume that the, the places that performed here from a technology point of view, Moderna and Biotech, are they the best bets to do something in cancer or something that would have more than a couple of year runs? I don't think we want to try to answer that question this afternoon, but that to me, from an investment point of view, is a good thing to spend a couple of weeks on. Um, Lantius, which is the company uh, I added here over the weekend, is one that Mike and Jason started to look at seriously Oh, some number of months ago, it, 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 it isn't the MNRA technology. What Lantheus does is uh, it has a business that accounts for half their revenues that, that Mike or Jason will describe to you, but they, through acquisition, have come up with a, a new product that uh, has gone from nothing to being half their revenues. The interesting thing to me about Lantheus is that they did have before and continue to have free cash flow and a uh, very, very strong balance sheet to fill out the, the rest of our time. I think it would be informative to us all to hear uh, Mike and Jason go through their their analysis of Lantheus. But to have that upside, I mean, as you can see, well, or those who have the pages in front of you, Lantheus sales growth last year was 50%. Lantheus growth and free cash flow was 30%. I think there's a fair chance, given what they've been able to establish with this acquired technology, that you could see you know, half a decade or more of, of, of those kinds of percentage increases. And it's a little high as compared to where Mike would like to acquire, like to acquire more of it, but still, 25 times free cash flow, 4% free cash yield, with your free cash flow growing 30% a year. I mean, those those are very attractive statistics. So, don't don't everyone every I, I, what I caution is is you really need to know what you're investing in. If, if you go back to all of Warren Buffett's sayings, he says, "Stay within what you know." and at least speaking for myself, they, these are these are new kinds of things to invest in that are going to, you know, you're going to have to get used to and get familiar with. But with that as a caution, over to over to you, Mike on, and Jason on Lantheus. Yeah, yeah, I would say certainly on the sheet that Lantheus looks a lot more expensive than Pfizer and Moderna, but they're kind of doing very opposite things over the last three years. So Pfizer and Moderna were were collecting the profits from COVID. Lantheus was was investing a lot into phase three trials for this treatment that ultimately hit the market last year. So a little background on Lantheus is they're actually a fairly old company. They were started in the in the 1950s, and they they're a diagnostic imaging company. So what they their core product line has always been contrast agents for ultrasounds. So they they really do have a monopoly on the contrast agent for echocardiograms. So that's imaging, imaging your heart to, to look for various forms of heart disease. So the story of how they acquired Pilarify or the new diagnostic is pretty interesting. The, the short Cliff Notes version is 
there's a, a company named Progenics doing research with a university in, in Germany, and they were studying these prostate-specific membrane antigens. And, and in particular, they were connecting tracer molecules to these antigens and, and trying to image the prostate. Turns out this was, this was very successful. And in particular, the prostate cancer tumors overexposed the receptors that these antigens bind to. So they're, they're really great at imaging the, the tumors and then especially with imaging the metastatic cancer, so cancer that's spread to the body. So this, this treatment's provided through an IV. It's, it's injected in your bloodstream, flows through your body, so it can find the cancers, the tumors, anywhere in the body, and then this, this shows up in a PET scan. So when that research concluded, the university went on to license that technology to Novartis, unbeknownst to the, to the Progenics company. Once they did find out, as you can imagine, there was a, a, a lot of lawsuits and, and big expense with that. But Progenics was a cash-burning biotech. So in, in 2020, Lantheus was the company that swooped in and, and purchased them for about $400 million and got all their IP. And in the following year, reached a settlement with Novartis and also received FDA approval for that treatment. And just to highlight how how good of a purchase that was is the first full year of the market last year, Pilarify did over 500 million in sales. So they, they purchased the rights to this, this diagnostic for less than one year sales. And a relatively high gross margin too. Yeah. I, I, I believe it's in the upper seventies. Yeah. So yeah, it was a home run purchase. Yeah. What about the deal with Novartis? It, will they have to compete with Novartis in, or have they divided up the map, or how how does that work? Yeah, Novartis kind of made a, a, a token settlement payment to Lantheus, and they are competing in in the European market. And but they're kind of frenemies, if you will, these days. They've they've partnered where Novartis went down the path of developing a instead of a diagnostic, they they developed a treatment. So the the antigen binds to the prostate cancer tumors, and then essentially irradiates the cell to, to kill it. And the partnership is that in order to, to diagnose the cancer uh, that will ultimately be treated, they have to use Pilarify to do that. Lantheus themselves are, are in phase three trials to test that treatment as well. So they're going to have their own version into market eventually. Right. How, uh, how big a market do you think it is, Jason? I don't have the numbers offhand, but Pilarify is quickly becoming the standard of care for, for diagnosing prostate cancer. And we don't see a reason why, you know, all prostate cancers won't be imaged with this product. And eventually they're going to use it in more per patient. So right now it's used about 1.2 times per patient. We see that number going up. And then when you're in remission there and you have elevated levels in your blood panels that they're going to want to image it again to make sure that it's it's not coming back. And then on top of that, the 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 baby boomer population is aging into the the range where they're most likely to be diagnosed, where the men are most likely to get to be diagnosed with prostate cancer, which is the most form of, common form of cancer for men. So in the U.S. Right. alone, there's about three hundred thousand prostate cancer cases per year. Right. Sorry, yeah. right. That'll be twenty twenty four. Today it's two sixty. Yeah, and, and and I know that's projected to grow. Yeah, pretty near, substantially. Nearly thirty or nearly ten percent in the next 
five years? Something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, I see 328, 2030, 344. So. What, what about applicability to other cancers? Yeah, they're, they're looking at where else it can be used. They, the furthest along was they were looking at ovarian cancer. And it, it turns out it wasn't a good imaging agent for that because other organs were kind of blocking uh, the view there. I think they're, they're also pretty far along with testing it on breast cancer as well as throat cancers. And, and, and they're looking at a, a lot of different cancers. Lanthius themselves aren't doing all of the research. They're, they're partnering with universities to, to conduct this too. Good. So, yeah, that's kind of a lottery ticket in our minds. We're we're not factoring that in, but, you know, a a successful trial through breast cancer would be, would be huge. Right. 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 Good. And I know just from uh, talking for 20 minutes to Mike every morning, you people feel that it's, towards the high end of, well, it is towards the high end of its 52-week range, and I guess you were able to buy it cheaper towards year-end. How, how, how do you think about valuation here? Is it, a, is it a steep uphill climb, or will it be kind of sawtooth in terms of, of uh, their results, or how does it look to you at this point? I anticipated, I don't know if I'd say steep uphill climb because they, they, they grab market share pretty quickly, but uh, I, I think it's definitely an upward trajectory. You know, you, you can't predict what the market's going to do, but we're kind of being opportunistic buyers. Yeah, I think our perspective is that it is so well received by both doctors and patients. Uptake will probably be faster than most people predict. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. yeah, the, the doctors we've spoken to, the oncologists have have they've said they they love working with this company so i think that's a yeah it's a very well respected business in general and diagnostics have historically been sort of sleepy and really what's what's happening here is these diagnostics and treatments are sort of melding together a little bit more the the diagnostic in this case is so important because if you miss any of the cancer when you're doing a surgery then you know you you have a recurrence so diagnostics now become, you know, we figured out how to do, do the surgeries. Diagnostics now become the key to better outcomes. So, right. and then right. once we're delivering treatments using the same mechanisms that we're using for diagnostics, you're talking about really kind of changing the face of diagnostics altogether. Right. Non, non-surgical treatments. And, and once a cancer is spreading, once it's metastatic, it's, it's really difficult to, to track and fight. And since this isn't localized like a surgery would be, it's, it's really a, an important tool. MNRA technology such as BioNTech has, and Moderna, and I guess Pfizer has through their joint venture with BioNTech, how applicable do you think it is for cancer treatments? Or to be determined, I guess. It's def- as, uh, yeah, definitely to be determined. It, it, it sounds promising, but we'll see. I think a lot of the trials are they're using it in conjunction with other therapies because it's, it's not, I don't believe, and I could be wrong, I, I don't believe they're having success in completely clearing cancer just using your own immune system. Um, and maybe they'll get there, but the initial ones are, maybe it's easier, a path to approval that, that it's a, 
a treatment in conjunction with, with some other therapies. Right. I think Moderna has a joint venture with Merck. And in fact, that's what's happening. Merck has a cancer drug that's being used in combination with the uh, MNRA treatment that Moderna has developed. And it seems to me, from an investment point of view, is to find companies with good balance sheets and free cash flows. So a development of a new drug uh, and getting it through the approval process is additive to uh, the value of the business rather than what I've always heard about biotechs is that they're kind of a series of, as Jason said, lottery tickets where one may work or another may work. And if you invest in 10 of them, maybe two of them will work and you'll come out okay. I, as an investor, I greatly prefer having companies with a significant amount of cash flow with that same potential. And you could say, well, then that drives you to Lilly and Mark and large companies like that. But I'm hoping that we can find smaller companies. I mean, Lanthius, which is a little different situation because it's not that technology, you know, only has about a $6 billion market cap. So, uh, you know, that's that's why I'm hoping we're going to be able to uncover and, and highlight as uh, uh, a way to, you know, really make significant gains. And with that, we're five minutes over and we're sitting here in the Northeast. We're getting our cold weather later. It would have been much better for energy stocks if we'd gotten it earlier. But uh, I hope everyone uh, uh, stays well, and, and uh, we'll talk next Wednesday. Yeah. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The host and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information, and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.